0: On episode 225 of the Tennis Fouls Podcast, you'll learn how to heal tennis elbow with special guest Emma
1: Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad.
0: Have you ever suffered from tennis elbow before, rendering you unable to play the sport that you love? Well, today's episode is definitely for you because we have on Emma Green, who is known as the Tennis Elbow Queen, And Emma graduated from Manchester University, England as a physical therapist and gained a master's degree in sports medicine. She is now both a licensed physical therapist in the USA and a physiotherapist uh, from the UK, along with being certified in clinical Pilates through the Australian Physiotherapy and Pilates Institute. And Emma's Career also saw her traveling worldwide with numerous national sports teams. One of the highlights of which was working at the London 2012 Olympic Games, which is pretty cool. And Emma now works with a wide variety of clients, including tennis players, to help them prevent, heal, and recover from tennis elbow. So I'm really excited to present this topic to you today because we have not before talked about tennis elbow specifically and focusing it, uh, focusing on it for a full podcast episode. Uh, But before we dive into the interview, I have to give you my pun of the day. And, you know, I'm trying my best here. We'll see how you like it. So here it is. A TV show host who loved tennis had one of the most biased and misleading news programs of all time. His show was called Top Spin. All right, well, uh, please don't log off. Please don't shut down this episode after that joke. You know, I I enjoy puns, and some of them are home runs. Some of them are not, so uh, let me know what you think about that one. But in any case, uh, once again, really excited for you to hear this episode. I really, really was impressed by Emma's knowledge and expertise on tennis elbow. So here we go. Here's my interview with the tennis elbow queen, Emma Green. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Falls Podcast. And it is a real honor and a pleasure to have Emma Green on the podcast. And I'm really excited to talk to Emma about tennis elbow, because that is something that frequently comes up, especially among amateur tennis players, which is the main audience, of course, for the podcast. And so we're going to dive deep into that and to learn, you know, how to uh, prevent it as well as, you know, what is it, what causes it and so forth. So uh, Emma, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and nice to see you.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I I really am passionate about this uh, topic as you'll hear as we go on, and I could talk about it forever. So uh, lovely to be here.
0: Thanks. Pleasure's mine. Thanks, Emma. So I think we're going to dive right into it um, because, you know, a lot of people don't really even know what tennis elbow is. So can you explain to us what tennis elbow is?
1: yeah absolutely tennis elbow is obviously sort of the generic term um the medical term for this exactly the same problem is lateral epicondylitis which obviously you can see why tennis elbow is kind of the generic term because that's a real mouthful (laughs) so basically what that means is lateral means on the outside so it's the outside of the elbow that's affected epicondylitis if you kind of you you could even do it now you could feel your elbow that little bony point on the outside of your elbow that's your epicondyle it's the one on the outside there's one on the inside too but the one on the outside that lateral epicondyle there's a big tendon that is, it comes from these forearm muscles. These muscles form one tendon that attaches into that bony part of the elbow. And when that tendon becomes irritated, that's when we get lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow, same thing. Um, And the the main thing that's going to cause that is going to be overuse. Um, There are Few other things that can cause it, sort of a direct injury is possible to to flare up tennis elbow Uh, and a couple of other things that that can do it. But without shadow of a doubt, the biggest thing that's going to give you tennis elbow is overuse.
0: Mm, Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. And um, as far as the technical aspects, like are there certain things that you've found in tennis players that they do technique-wise that causes them to get tennis elbow more often than others?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because it's an overuse type issue, the the gripping and sort of the the grip of the racket can oftentimes be one of the the causes of tennis elbow. Um, Because it is an overuse problem, it's probably been building up, it's been bubbling along for a while before you even feel it. And this is often one of the things that is is sort of most confusing to people, they can be kind of like, well, it just came out of the blue. And you've almost got to backtrack three, even six months prior to when you first felt those symptoms to say, well, what changed? Because something changed three to six months ago, whether you, whether you changed your racket, whether you changed your grip, whether you increase the frequency of, of how you play. Maybe you changed your biomechanics. Maybe you changed the way you hit a certain shot, but something changed three to six months before you started feeling those symptoms. It could even be restringing. Um, you you restrung the racket. It can be a ton of these different things. I was actually on a call um, earlier today with a gentleman who had suffered with tennis elbow for, for Over two years. And he put it down to the fact that he'd played a really hard game of singles when he's used to playing doubles. So he'd played a really hard game of singles and then went on a mountain bike ride. And again, a tough mountain bike ride where he was kind of, you know, cranking on the brake a lot. So you can see how much that arm would have been used in in both of those activities. It's an accustomed activity, and that was just enough to flare him up, and it lasted for a full two years.
0: Wow, very interesting stuff. You have a lot of questions uh, as follow-up. So, I mean, is it um, uh, possible that, like, players uh, being too tight in their arm can also cause tennis elbow
1: absolutely that absolutely and it's one of the um this is one of the symptoms that a lot of people do complain about as well that they're obviously very tender over the tendon itself because that's the part of the tissue that is uh, irritated but the tendon is attached to the muscles if those muscles are tight they're going to pull on that tendon they're going to tug on that irritated tissue and that's actually going to prolong the problem now If we're in pain, our muscle tension goes up. So you can see how those two things are are very... they're inextricably linked. Right. So if you're feeling pain, your muscle tension is going to go up. If your muscle tension goes up, you're going to feel more pain. And it just, it's a cycle like that. So that is one of the big things that we really work on in the very early stages of um, treatment with tennis elbow is bringing down that muscle tension and trying to decrease that that tightness. Exactly right.
0: Great. Very good to know. Um, and then in terms of the the changes that you mentioned, like as far as like racket changes and string t- uh, changes, what changes and in what direction usually cause tennis elbow?
1: Oh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And <laughs> unfortunately there's no one answer to it because we're all so individual you know some people when they string their racket tight you know that that can cause it when some people don't have it as as tight Hmm. some people with a, a larger grip some with a more narrow grip it is so individual
0: yeah, that is really interesting, actually, to hear that. You know, because I, I was predicting, I guess, that oh, you know, like if you switch to a thicker string or you string it a h- uh, higher tension, then that's going to make the problem happen. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's interesting to know that's the other way around potentially. Um, so that's that's pretty neat. Uh, and then also, uh, just in regards to to um, golfer or golf elbow, like you, is that the the opposite side of of the tendon you identified? Yeah, okay.
1: It is. Remember, we talked about lateral epicondylitis being on the outside. That's tennis yeah. elbow. The bony part on the inside of the elbow—that's your medial mm-hmm. epicondyle. That's where you would get golfer's elbow. And obviously, not all tennis players get tennis elbow. Not all golfers get golfer's elbow. I've had golfers who get tennis elbow in their non-dominant arm. It's you know, it, <laughs> it's it's just the phrase for it.
0: Okay, gotcha. And and which uh, which one is actually a worse condition? I know we were focusing on tennis elbow, but is is one worse than the other?
1: No, they're just they're exactly the same pathology, just Mm. in a different part of the body. And so the treatment, the um, sort of the length of time they can last, all of that is exactly the same. Just a different part of the body.
0: Gotcha. Thanks, Emma. And so I'm curious to know, obviously, like how how did you become passionate in tennis elbow? Like, did you get tennis elbow and then you tried to figure it out or like, how did that come about?
1: Great question. So actually, when when I was a young kid, my my mom had tennis elbow. She was Mm -hmm. not a tennis player, but she was at home with three kids. And I think we gave a tennis elbow, or sort of like keeping house gave (laughs) a tennis elbow. And so I'd watched my mom at this very young age, um, struggle with this condition that obviously, at the time, I I didn't know anything about other than that my mom was struggling with it. And I I do know she had a, a cortisone injection into it. And she I I remember her telling me it was the most painful thing that she had ever been through. And she had three kids. Um, and then six months later, she went back and had another one because the first one didn't work. And you know, you kind of think, gosh, if somebody is going back to have something that is like the most painful thing they've ever experienced because they're struggling so much with this elbow problem. And so I guess that was kind of at the back of my mind, even before I became a physical therapist. Um, and, and, in the very early stages of, of my, my career, or essentially the first half of my career, I was I trained in the UK. So I, I worked in the UK for about 10 years before moving to the US. Um, and I was very much working with sports teams over in the UK. So I would travel with sports teams, um, s- including tennis. And so, uh, you know, I was sort of exposed to the different problems that they get. But it wasn't until um, 14 years ago when I was over here in the U.S., I was working at the local hospital. Um, my having, having a couple of kids had slowed me down from traveling all over the place with sports teams, unfortunately. But, um, but fortunately, I was in a position where I was introduced to a professional drummer who was suffering with tennis elbow. Um, he had suffered for 18 months. He wasn't able to play. And obviously, that was his livelihood. Um, and he'd been everywhere, tried everything. You know, my mom had had two cortisone injections. He'd had I, I've countless different treatment techniques, different injections, everything. Nothing had worked. Um, and he ended up in front of a surgeon and uh, and said to her, you know, just give me surgery. And I, I, This is, I need something that is going to help me with this. And thankfully, she said to him, I just want you to, to go and see my therapist first because I know you've had all of this treatment, but I don't know exactly what they've done. Let's just give conservative treatment one more try and see how it goes. So she actually sent him to the local hospital where I was working to one of my co-workers, who who is a, a certified hand therapist, one of the most knowledgeable and wonderful therapists that I have ever met. Um, and he was working with her and he was asking her all of these questions sort of like, and, and, and the, the question that sort of prompted her to ask me about him was, can my spine be affecting my tennis elbow? Mm. And, you know, she was kind of like, I don't really know. I've not thought about that. Let me, let me ask somebody. And so she, she asked me about it. We chatted about it. I was like, you know, it, it I mean, it definitely can for sure. So let me see him. He was transferred onto my list and over the next six months, I just, I I just got really interested in his case and I just really wanted to help him. And so I researched all the medical literature at that time. I was like, there's gotta be stuff out there about healing tennis elbow. And there was a lot of stuff out there about healing tennis elbow, showing that most of the treatment techniques that were were being done at the time were not actually that effective. Hmm. So There was lots of literature showing us what didn't work, but not very much showing us what did. So I knew how to heal Achilles tendon problems. I'd done that really successfully in my sports career and with athletes. And I was like, you know, I wonder if I can take those principles and apply it to the the elbow and let's see if it works. So over the course of six months, we, through trial and error, we tried all of these different things and we got to a point where he was able to get back to doing everything he wants to do with no restrictions. His pain was completely resolved, but it took lots of, there there were lots of layers and this, when somebody's had tennis elbow for a long time, it starts to affect more things. It's almost like when you drop a a pebble into a pond and you get that ripple effect. You know, we think very much of tennis elbow as being this one spot here where we can really put our finger on it. And that's where the problem is. But by the time you've had this for, for 18 months, it had affected his shoulder, his shoulder blade, his neck, his upper back his his wrist and hand as well as the elbow and the nerves that come out of the neck and all the way down to the tips of his fingers so we had to address all of those different things to get him to the point where he was 100 percent healed
0: wow that's really fascinating uh you know how many things can (laughs) contribute so that that's really really interesting um you know i i try to ask you um uh, some various scenarios would appreciate your advice so like i guess if if somebody like first feels like a little bit of tennis elbow, um, you know, when they start hitting, but it's not too bad. uh, What, what, what is the optimal thing to do at this point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's one of those things that there is actually one stretch that you can do that will prevent tennis elbow. It's, Hmm. it's also the stretch that you can do to, it's, it's part of the treatment for tennis elbow as well. So, I have I've got a video of me teaching that stretch that I'm going to offer to your listeners. So right. I'll give you the link to that and they can get that stretch because it's it's good for both. It will prevent and it will help to treat. And for exactly the reasons that you brought up before, you know, when that forearm starts to develop tension, when we start to get tension in those muscles, that's going to start tugging on the tendon. The tendon is going to start to complain about that. So if we can decrease that muscle tension using this stretch, you can prevent or treat tennis elbow with it. So that's that's one of the biggest things that I recommend is this stretch. But in conjunction with that, you're actually going to heat your forearm. And this is very counterintuitive. Many tennis elbow sufferers who, who come, first come into my world, um, you know, and I ask them about, well, what are you doing? And they're all icing their elbows. They're icing it and, you know, trying to bring the inflammation down and they're trying to ice it. And I, you know, I, I always say to them, is it working? Like, well, Not really. It's like, okay maybe let's change that. Let's switch it to heat. And that's one of the biggest differences that, that people find when, when they find me. It's like, well, you're telling me to heat it. That's, that goes against what all the doctors are saying, what everybody else is saying. Well, are we supposed to, to ice an injury? And so my response to that is for the first three days, yes. When an injury is very new or very fresh, yes, we put ice on it. We do. Once you've gone past that first three days, the the healing process has changed so that we're not getting sort of bleeding and swelling into that area anymore, which is what the ice will help to control. And what we need to do is we need to start bringing that muscle tension down to allow that tendon to heal. And heat will do that much more effectively. So I advocate a lot of heat in the treatment of tennis elbow.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating, so the first three days or so ice, but then after that heat
1: yeah, mm, that's interesting, when we tend to interesting.
0: yeah would you uh recommend like uh taking really hot showers too would that help
1: <laughs> it, it can yeah i'll I'll say to people because um the heat as well it's not like a once a day thing, especially if you're trying to if you're trying to treat tennis elbow and prevent it from affecting your shoulder and your shoulder blade your neck and everything else that we, we we found with with the drummer that i treated um if you're trying to sort of nip it in the bud you need to be heating as much as possible i used to say to clients yeah two to three times a day let's get some heat on there and then i had two clients completely independently of each other so one was over here in the us one was in the uk Both of them at around the same time heated way more than I suggested. And both of them got better faster. Mm. And so I was kind of like, okay, this is really interesting. And and this is one of the things as well. My my program changes and evolves as new medical research comes out. But it also changes and evolves as my clients tell me things, you know, and to learn that actually if somebody is able to heat five times a day or more, they're going to get better faster than somebody who doesn't.
0: Very fasting.
1: Blew my mind. That's it. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought, okay, well, what is the process going on here? What what is happening with that? Why are people who are heating more getting better faster? And and the first thing is they are reducing that muscle tension. So they're taking the tension off the tendon, allowing it to heal. The second thing is the tendon itself does not have a very good blood supply. Anatomically, that's just the way tendons are made. And it's just quite normal that they don't have a very good blood supply. But when we have an injured tissue, we need a good circulation coming into that area for healing. So the blood flow is going to bring the building blocks for the healing process that the body needs for that injury. And if you don't have a very good blood flow, then you're going to struggle to get those building blocks into that area. So by putting the heat on and doing that frequently, you get that increase in circulation. And so that helps to boost the healing process.
0: Super neat, Emma. So is there a specific tool that you recommend for the heating, Is a specific type of heating pad or some other device that you prefer?
1: Yeah, I I really like the heating pads that you throw in the microwave. They tend to be the best. They tend to be able to mold around the area better than sort of plug-in ones can. Um, I have had some clients who have had great success with sort of wraps that go around their elbows as well. Um, I Again, I can share those. Uh, I, can, I can share a list of those things with you and maybe we can put them in the okay. show notes so people can see sort of um, examples of those. But from a heat point of view, um, I don't just advocate the heat to the forearm and the elbow. The heat needs to be around the neck, around the shoulders, around the arm. Because when you've started to feel these symptoms, we know that this has been bubbling up on for probably three to six months and there's likely to be other things involved so we make sure we get all of those structures underneath the heat and getting that circulation to them
0: fascinating so emma i, I know you mentioned like uh s- some specific cases of like you know other parts of the body um you know causing uh, tennis elbow but c- can you kind of either recap or just let us know like what are the main other areas like that could be causing issues of uh, tennis elbow issues
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, For people who have had symptoms for probably three months or less, um, that's very easy to get rid of tennis elbow. So um, Mm. there's, there's just less structures involved and that's the reason. So it can be that we can just really focus on the elbow, the forearm, giving them very specific stretches and strengthening exercises. It really settles it down very, very fast. Anything above that, I know there's going to be more things involved. A shoulder impingement, so any type of rotator cuff problem, shoulder impingement problems, obviously, you know, very common in in tennis players. um, That can have a knock-on effect further down the chain. So that would be the elbow. And this can happen subconsciously. You know, if you've got a little irritation, a little something going on with the shoulder, you're going to change the way that you move. You're going to change your biomechanics to try and take the stress and strain away from the shoulder. that's normal. This happens at a subconscious level. It's the body's self-preservation mechanism kicking in. The body's kind of saying, I don't want stress and strain going through that injured area. So what it does, it changes the way that you move to reduce the stress and strain from one area. That stress and strain is going to go somewhere else. So it either goes up the chain to your neck or it goes down the chain to your elbow. So shoulder problems can have that knock and effect to tennis elbow. Uh, Shoulder blade Issue you can have a muscle imbalance around the shoulder blade. Many people have a tightness in the upper traps. You know, these are our stress muscles, 10 minutes in traffic and these kind of pop up. The upper traps can be overworking and be very tight. The lower traps, which control how the shoulder blade moves can, can be weak. And that in itself can cause biomechanical changes to the way that the shoulder blade moves. Changes in the shoulder are going to affect, in the shoulder blade are going to affect the shoulder. And again, it can travel down the chain. Issues with the neck. They're they're definitely, probably 95% of the tennis elbow clients that I see have an issue with the neck that needs addressing in order for their elbow to heal completely. Um, So there's there's a a very easy neck exercise that I give people to do that is initially primarily to to heal their elbow, but a side effect of that is great spine health as well. So, which is not such a bad side effect. So, (laughs) so we get them, we integrate those exercises into their day as a, right, let's find, let's, let's be able to do this really simply and really easily to not only get rid of the tennis elbow problem, but also to keep your spine as good as it can be too. Um, and, and the nerves that come out of the neck, the, again, 95% of my clients will have a nerve issue that needs addressing that is, is related to tennis elbow. We see this um, in other parts of the body as well. It's very common for a tendon issue to be associated with a nerve problem. I was—I mentioned the um, Achilles tendon clients that I've worked with in the past. Many of those will have an issue with the sciatic nerve and they don't even know about it because they're so focused on this painful tendon. It's not until we do testing that it's like, actually there's, there's this issue in the nerve that we need to address as well. So it's just peeling back all of those layers and making sure nothing is missed. Often when I, I talk to clients who have suffered for a long time, and, you know, unfortunately, people are out there who've suffered for, you know, the gentleman I was talking to earlier on this, this morning, two years. Um, the the uh, drummer who came to see me 18 months, you know, I've seen clients who've had it for seven years. I'm working with a lady right now, she's had it for 12 years. I mean, it's just, it's such a long period of time. And, you know, when you've had something for such a long period of time, there are going to be these changes that need to be addressed. And, often they've not been addressed in the past, which is why things have not healed. Because if not every single piece of the puzzle is, is worked on, then it's never going to heal 100%. It's always going to keep coming back. And that's the big problem.
0: Mm, wow so yeah the earlier you catch it the better and you've, you've got to look way beyond uh you know the the area where it's uh you know being affected so um Emma, can you give us some more insight I'm curious about your your work with the drummer like um you know the specific things that you did with um with him I think that that allowed him to uh to heal
1: yeah. Absolutely. And so initially it was figuring out exactly what was going on, you know, and again, it's not just looking at the elbow. He had biomechanical issues going on around his shoulder and shoulder blade, his neck and his upper back. So all of those areas needed to be worked on. He was doing a home program. He was using the heat. Um, He was doing the neck exercises. He was doing stretches for his upper traps, for his pecs for his forearm, Um, and it's, you know, over time, I started to realize that my program really is broken into four phases. So there are four phases of treatment that people need to go through, and phase one is all about settling down the symptoms. It's all about um, getting people as comfortable as possible, as fast as possible, Um, using heat, maybe using ice, you know, depending on the, the stage that they're at, Um, there's sort of like 10, 11, 12 different strategies that people can do at home that I talk them through. Um, And some of them will be, some of them will be very um, expected by people like the heat and the ice. Some will be very unusual. For example, I advocate cardio exercise to heal tennis elbow. And people kind of look at me, it's like, but it's my elbow, it's not my knee, it's not my ankle. Why are you getting me to do cardio exercise? And again, it goes back to we need that circulation whizzing around the body. We want to get that blood flow into the tendon in any way that we can. We know the heat will do it, but so will cardio exercise. So walking or or um, running, swimming, mm. sitting on a, a, an exercise bike, all of these things are going to be really helpful, but it's 30 minutes every day, no days off. So we're doing this cardio exercise for rehab, not for fitness, so we don't take days off from rehab. So it's 30 minutes of cardio every day. If people have had this problem for three months or more, I know that they're going to be experiencing chronic pain. Chronic pain by its very definition is just pain that people have had for three months or longer. Um, You know, go back 20 years, we didn't really know that much about chronic pain, but we're learning more and more about it. And now we know that chronic pain actually makes biochemical changes in the brain and even anatomical changes in the brain and Mm. what that means is the brain then perceives pain way faster than it should so for example um, I was talking to a client last week and he was saying just something like like the sheets at night, he gets into bed, just the, the brush of the sheet over there will trigger it and he will feel this intense pain. Well, you should be able to have a sheet brush against your elbow and not feel this intense pain. So that was telling me that he's experiencing chronic pain. So when you're experiencing chronic pain and you have these biochemical and anatomical changes in the brain, we have to reverse those because otherwise you're going to keep feeling these things. So there are certain treatment techniques that we can do to help um, decrease those symptoms. Um, The nervous system is sort of hypersensitized. It's almost on high alert the whole time, and we want to bring that down, that that hypersensitivity. And one of the best ways of doing that is by getting out into nature. And this is where it starts to sound a little bit woo-woo. And seeing green things. There's a lot of research coming out of Japan right now with regards to, uh, that they've coined the phrase, forest bathing. And it's essentially getting out and into nature. And what we're seeing is that just getting out and being in amongst nature is it will change the biochemistry in the brain in a positive way. So it decreases stress hormones like cortisol. It increases the, the feel-good hormones, um, so so that we feel less pain and we feel more happy. It's actually affecting, de- uh, in, a, in a positive way, affecting depression, anxiety, all of these different things. But it makes those changes for our chronic pain patients as well. So when people are doing their 30 minutes of cardio every day, I'm saying to them, get outside, go and see green things, you know, see trees and grass and flowers. And if you'd have told me at the start of my career that I would be advocating this, I would have told you, you're bonkers. I, I, that's... <laughs> way too, way out there for me, but the research is backing it up and it, and it works and it helps these clients. So getting out and seeing green things is another strategy that we use. Um, Progressive relaxation brings down the muscle tension, meditation for the same effects of the brain biochemistry and visualization. Visualization is huge for my athletes and my musicians in particular. So we use a lot of those strategies in phase one. Um, Then we move into phase two, which is all about um, normalizing the soft tissues. And, And you touched on that right at the beginning of this episode when you asked about the tension in the forearm muscles. And that's exactly it. We have to normalize that tension. And so there are 15 different stretches and soft tissue techniques that we use in phase two that bring down that muscle tension. And then we get to phase three. Phase three is all about strengthening. It's where the magic happens. This is where we actually heal the tendon. There are very specific exercises that we can do that will heal this tendon. And sometimes, you know, people will sort of jump into phase three and think, I've, got, I've just got to strengthen it. But if you've not normalized the muscle tension first, Those strengthening exercises are going to irritate it and make you feel worse. And that goes back to that muscle tension. If your muscle tension is up and you do a strengthening exercise, that muscle tension is just going to go higher. That's going to pull on the tendon. That's going to make you feel uncomfortable. You're not going to be happy about it. So bringing that muscle tension down in phase one and phase two before we get to the strengthening. But the strengthening is where the magic happens. It's all about trying to get people to that point. So we can load the tendon in the correct way to heal it. And then phase four is all about returning to function, getting back on court, being able to take those shots and not feel any symptoms and building that up progressively in a safe way so that we don't irritate the elbow.
0: Excellent, Emma. Thanks for that. Very, very good stuff. And so some follow-ups naturally. Um, first off, uh, curious about the, the second phase. Uh, so how do we know when our tension is actually normalized?
1: Oh, I love this question. Um, <laughs> so I use the stake test. And, and this is, uh, I guess it's something that I just kind of came up with myself because I was already doing a lot of virtual work pre-pandemic. So I was already on Zoom before everybody else was on Zoom because I have clients all over the world. And so obviously they couldn't come and see me in the clinic. So I'm like, how can I tell what their muscle tension feels like without me actually putting my hands on them? So I developed this test and you can try it right now. So what you're going to do is you're going to, you want your arm to be nice and relaxed. So we're not going to hold your arm up because then there's tension in the muscle. So you can either rest your arm down on your lap or on the arm of the chair or on the desk in front of you, kind of wherever you are. You're going to use your fingers through the muscle and you're going to feel through the muscle like that. So essentially, you know, my, my clients kind of become my hands because like this is one of the tests I do with my clients. You're going to feel through the muscle like this and you're going to feel through, feel through the right, feel through the left. And you're going to get, um, you're going to get an idea of how does it feel right to left? You know, is it the same? Is it different? And then we're going to grade it. So if you imagine you were pushing into a steak, is it rare, medium or well done? and mm. that's what that's what i want you to tell me. So how does it feel right now? How how does it feel as you push through your forearm? Where are you at? Well, well
0: it's funny. My left arm is uh much more supple. It's like a 5 or something like that. But then my right, and i just played a match yesterday, a 2-hour match, uh is that like a maybe it's 8 or 7. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. So we're a little well done on that right side. So obviously, you're yeah. right-handed. Mm -hmm. So you're feeling more tension in your dominant side. So Mm -hmm. that would be, if you were one of my clients and you were sitting in front of me saying, I've got these symptoms, this is how my muscles feel. So if you had just given me that information, it's like, okay, we need to really work on the phase one and phase two strategies for bringing that muscle tension down, so you're going to be heating, you're going to be stretching, you're going to be doing some soft tissue techniques. I um I teach soft tissue massage, I teach trigger point techniques. There are different things that we can utilize to bring that muscle tension down. But we've got to bring that muscle tension down so that right feels the same as left, and they they feel you know kind of medium rise, kind of a a good way for them to feel. Before we start the strengthening exercises, because if you jump in too soon, it is just going to start tugging on that tendon and it's not going to like it.
0: Got it. Very cool. Thank you for that. And uh, I guess going back to the first phase, I was wondering like what, uh, how do you visualize or what do you actually visualize or what do you suggest for that step to help with tennis elbow?
1: Yeah. Great, great question. So the visualization um, part of it is it's, it's not so much for the healing of the tendon. It's more about the recovery to getting people back to doing the things that they want to do. Mm. So, um, so for example, I was working with a young player, sort of high school age, not able to play because that, you know, the elbow was, was bothering her. And, but what we didn't want to do is lose any of her skills while she couldn't play, while she was going through the rehab. Um, and so visualization became a daily practice for her so that she didn't lose those neural pathways. So I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. Basically, when we're learning a skill, and, and I love to give you, you know, the uh, example of a little kid riding a bike. So if you think of a really little kid, a young kid first trying to learn how to ride a bike and they're, they're, they're trying and they kind of fall and they try and they fall. The reason that they can't do that is because they don't have the motor learning to be able to achieve that skill. So what that means is the the brain sends the messages down to the muscles to say, switch on in this way to achieve this skill. They don't know which pathways to to fire, to light up, to achieve that skill. So they try this one. It's the wrong one. They fall off. So they try another pathway. It's like, well, do I need to switch my muscles on in this way? Now, obviously, they're, they're not aware of this. It just happens automatically. But once they get that skill and they're able to ride along and, you know, big smile on the face and that look at me riding on my bike. They, they are then strengthening that neural pathway. They found the right one. They found the right sequencing of their muscles, their muscle activation. And each time they now ride the bike, they're strengthening that pathway to say, yes, this is a good one. This is a good one. This gives me success in this skill. Now as tennis players, we're constantly strengthening those neural pathways when we make that absolute killer shot, you know, when, when we're being successful in taking the shots that we're, we're doing. And we don't want to lose those skills when we're not able to do them physically. So we visualize them. And the visualization is incredibly powerful to maintain those neural pathways, because as soon as we stop using a neural pathway, it will start to weaken. And, and, and we don't want to do that. You know, it, it's, it's that old saying, um, use it or lose it. So we want to use it, but we can't physically use it right now. So we're going to think about it. So going back to the high school player. Um, so I, I would talk her through this when she was learning how to do it. And basically, so, so, you know, you, you're lying down or you're sitting somewhere comfortably and you're going to really use your imagination you're going to really, you're going to be in that moment. So, you know, you can, you can smell the grass, you can feel the sun on your face, you can feel the racket in your hand, you can feel the ball in your hand, you can see your opponent, you can hear the birds tweeting around, you just want to be totally in that moment. And then you, you, you throw the ball, you make the serve you you hear the sound of of the racket connecting with the ball you just want to be totally in that moment because the brain doesn't know what's real and what's not i know that sounds a bit strange but the if you are totally in that moment the brain believes you're there and it fires those neurons it fires those neural pathways you're not moving but you're strengthening the neural pathway so we don't lose that now Athletes will, uninjured athletes will use this technique. And this is how I was introduced to it years ago when I was a gymnast. Um, our coach introduced us to vi- visualization. Um, and he would get us, to, like, to, before we started visualizing ourselves doing the different moves and the, 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 the different um, tricks, he would get us to think of a teacup. And I can remember sniggering like heck, because like, what is he going on about? (laughs) Think of a teacup. This is crazy. But he he would get us to visualize a teacup and then visualize, okay, now you're on the beam and you're doing this move, or you're on the bars and you're doing this move. And you visualize yourself doing that move perfectly over and over and over and over again. And again, the research that's coming out recently has shown that they they looked at um, basketball players and they looked at basketball players who shot 100 baskets and basketball players who visualized themselves shooting 100 baskets. And over a period of time, they they tested them physically at the beginning. Then they did this visualization for three weeks and then they tested both groups at the end. You know, so one, one set had been shooting baskets every single day. The other group had not, but just been thinking about it. And they both came out the same at the other end. It's just like that blew my mind. It's like the power of thought and the power of visualization just through strengthening those neural pathways. So for all of my athletes and all all of my musicians, we use visualization.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned visualization. And yeah, I do remember where, uh, I forget which tennis player it was, but this person was injured for a while, but they kept visualizing, you know, their shots. And I think in particular the forehand and this person's forehand was better, you know, when they came back from injury. Um, and I I remember interviewing James Blake and he just talked about how key visualization was uh, for his success and that he'd do that before matches. So, um, such a great technique there, Emma. So appreciate that. And, um, you know, strengthening that, that phase, you know, it's uh, like you said, a lot, a lot, of people love to jump into that too early, but, uh, can you give us, um, some more insight into that process or if there's maybe like one or two exercises that you think would really help in particular, uh, in that phase?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so when, when people are going through my program, I, I basically strengthen them from the core all mm. the way out. So, you know, core strength is as essential as as forearm strength, because if you've got a weak core and everything's trying to work off that weak core, maybe that was even part of the reason that you developed Tennis Elbow in the first place. So I strengthen people through their core. I get them to do strengthening exercises for their neck, their shoulder blade, rotator cuff. We address all of those areas. Now to heal the tendon, there's a very specific exercise, heavy load eccentric exercises will heal the tendon um that i mean you can go on youtube and you can look these up there are ways to not do it generally if you're gripping gripping is going to irritate tennis elbow and Mm. so we want to try and eliminate grippings. that's why sort of um rowing machine is not going to be one of the cardio exercises you're going to do um but the, the the gripping is something that we need to avoid Doing the exercises in a very specific way that's not going to irritate the tendon is the key to it. So uh, the the concentric portion of the movement, which is where the muscle shortens, is going to irritate the tendon. The eccentric portion, where that muscle lengthens, is not going to irritate the tendon. So you know, getting getting coaching from somebody who is well versed in those exercises is really important. And and sometimes. I will teach clients this exercise. They will watch me do it and I will go through this exercise and I'll show them how to do it. It's like, right, go away, do it twice a day, three sets of 15, twice a day is what you're going to do. And they'll come back the next week and I'll watch them do it and they're not doing it right, you know? And it's so essential to do it correctly because the slightest little thing that's not correct is going to irritate that tendon or it's going to irritate your back or it's going to irritate your shoulder or your wrist and hand. So it's that that part of it is super important to get guidance so you know you're doing it correctly. Um, But everything then working together, getting the core activated, getting all of these different things, working correctly to build that strength is essential. Um, I spoke to a tennis player from the UK about six months ago, and, and he had successfully rehabbed himself from tennis elbow, But couldn't get back on court, and he couldn't understand why. He was like, you know, I feel fine doing everything, just like all my normal activities through the day. I'm completely fine, but I just cannot get back on court. I start feeling it as soon as I start hitting the ball. I'm just so frustrated. And so I asked him about his rehab, and he told me what he what he had done, and it was pretty comprehensive. And I was like, that's absolutely great. How heavy did you get on your weights? And he said three pounds. And I said, well, I'm not surprised you can't get back on court. You know, the the exercises that that, um, you need to be doing, you need to be at least 12 pounds plus to be getting back to playing tennis. Um, And, again, that's that's another big part that can be missing with people if they don't get heavy enough with their their strengthening exercises. So my clients are are, um, advised that they need to be somewhere between 5 and 8 pounds to be pain free doing their normal day to day activities, they need to be between eight and 12 pounds to be doing sort of more moderate intensity activities. And then we're 12 pounds plus for more intense activities like tennis, golf, weightlifting. Um, I've got a client in the UK who, again, I was talking to this morning. He races motorbikes. So not only is he sort of like, you know, cranking on the brake and the the um the the gears he's also lifting his bike in and out of the truck when he's at races and so he had developed well tennis and golfers elbow in both arms so it was quite a journey but he's actually he's he's doing 25 pounds with his weights so you know it depends on what you want to be doing if it's really high intensity you definitely need to get your weights up three pounds is never going to be enough
0: yeah. I love that, Emma. Thank you for that. And so I guess, you know, with, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense in the, especially the eccentric phase, you know, that you, uh, you want to have enough weight. Um, but how do you, how do you accomplish that, uh, you know, using enough weight without gripping it? Cause a lot of us, you know, immediately we think about like a dumbbell or a barbell or something like that.
1: Yeah. And I, I do teach this with a dumbbell and, and there are ways of holding that dumbbell. So, and, and again, this is when I'm, when I'm first teaching people how to do it, it's like, this is not a death grip on you, your dumbbell. You don't want to be really gripping hard. Mm. You're just holding it enough so that it doesn't fall to the floor. That's all. And that's okay.
0: I see. I see. Awesome, Emma. Um, I know we uh, have to conclude soon, um, but let's see if I can get some more questions in here. Does does um, I'm wondering if diet or sleep or anything else uh, you know has an effect on tennis elbow as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I cover both of those things in phase one. So when we're really setting the foundation for healing, I cover both both um, diet and sleep. Sleep is when we heal. So if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're not getting good quality sleep, your body is going to struggle to heal. So it's really important to try and get those eight hours if, you know, if that works for you. Um, cutting down on the caffeine just before you go to bed getting off the screens before we go to bed. So we get rid of that blue light It allows our brains to go to sleep. So yeah, I go through all of those different um, strategies and then trying to keep the same bedtime and the, the same getting up time every single day. Our body's just like routine, you know, we're creatures of habit. And then switching to diet, our when when we are in a healing phase, when we're trying to heal an injury, our body needs protein for healing. They're essentially the building blocks for healing. So we need to be making sure that we are taking protein in. And I advise people to think about their protein every single meal, even snacks. Um, and it can be nuts. It can be you know all different types of protein. It doesn't have to be meat but making sure that you are getting protein in so that the the body has those building blocks for healing that it needs. If you're not taking enough in through your diet, then the body will take it from a source that it has access to, and that's your muscles. And we know with tennis elbow, you're already going to have a weakness in the muscles because you're in pain. You've not been using the muscles normally. So that weakening starts within 24 hours of the symptoms and so we don't want the body to be taking protein from the muscles and and accentuating that problem. So getting enough protein in for healing is really important.
0: Mm, thank you, Emma. And and one more question: um, How do we ensure? And that's a you know big word there, but how do we almost ensure that we do not get tennis elbow? How do we prevent it?
1: Yeah. Great, great, great question. And, and again, it's, it's kind of like the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> so, I mean, definitely listening to your body. And I know sometimes that's hard because, you know, as athletes, we always just want to push on through, you know, the no pain, no gain mentality is, is what makes people successful in sport. Um, but there are certain things that sometimes maybe we do need to listen to ensuring that you are stretching. Is one of the biggest things. And I know when, when we're feeling fit and healthy, yeah, you know, maybe it's the thing that we let slide. You know, we don't always do our <laughs> Don't do that. Like after a match, maybe then we're going to feel some tension the day after. You know, just like you were finding <laughs> in your forearm. Not going to call you out on that, but. <laughs>
0: You're right, but
1: yeah, <laughs> doing the stretching is is going to be the most important thing because we know that when you've played tennis, your muscle tension increases. So you've been working those muscles; the muscle tension is up. Unless we actively bring that down, it's going to stay up. And for the most part, that's not too much of a problem. But when that starts to become every single day and then maybe the tension goes a little higher and a little higher and a little higher and it just keeps going on and on and on then you are setting yourself up for problems so stretching out is the simplest and the easiest thing that you can do. I do advocate to stretch when you're warm. You absolutely can do that in the hot shower. You know, when you get home, you've you've played a match, get home, hot shower, stretch out in the shower. Just that one stretch that I'm going to give you guys is going to be enough. So it does not take much out of your day. It just takes a little bit of time to get into that habit of doing it and that routine of doing it. But once you've got that, that will be enough.
0: Wonderful, Emma. Uh, you know, it's very clear after this interview that you truly are the tennis elbow queen. So <laughs> I really love it. Um, so Emma, let, let's uh, educate the audience. I'm sure many of them will want to, you know, connect with you or find out, you know, what else you're doing and other content. So can you let us know like the best place to, to follow you or places?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do have a website, tenniselbowqueen.com. Um, I have a Facebook group um, for tennis elbow sufferers. Uh, which is Elbow Pain Relief with the Tennis Elbow Queen. I have a book uh, that you can get on Amazon. um, And my email, I'm more than happy for people to email me, emma at tenniselbowqueen.com.
0: Great. Awesome. Well, we will have all of these links in the show notes, uh, on the show notes page, as well as the uh, stretch, I believe, video that you mentioned, Emma. Uh, How about socials?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so I am on Instagram, uh, Emma Green Online uh, and Facebook, Emma Green Online as well.
0: Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emma. I think we just hit time, but I highly encourage everybody to check out uh, tenniselbowqueen.com and the Facebook group as well. And again, we'll have all those links, check them out. And I want to thank you so much for all the great information that you've given us, Emma, and I hope we can connect again in the future. And it was really awesome to uh, hear uh, your expertise uh, on the podcast. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Anytime. Thanks, Emma. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with the tennis elbow queen, Emma Green. I love that that rhymes. Uh, Very good nickname selection there, Emma. And if you did, I really would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Falls podcast. I think we still might be at 99 reviews. So one more till 100. Uh, If you are that person, that would be really, really cool. And I'd really appreciate it. And as well, uh, we do have all of the links to the show for today that were mentioned in the show notes. So just go to the show notes page, uh, which will be in your app of choice that you use to listen to the show. And with that, I do want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of this show, and this one is by Confucius. And Confucius said, to be wronged is nothing unless you continue to remember it. Uh, This is a great quote because this can be applied to tennis as well in the sense of um, you you know, making an error or, you know, having a a ball called out against you. And if you keep stewing over it, then it's going to really affect you in a negative way. Um, but if you don't let it affect you and you just try to react positively, then you will, um, succeed, uh, or at least, you know, do your best to succeed, which is what we have to all do. So, I uh, hope you like that quote, and I really hope that you liked this episode and really appreciate your continued support of the podcast. And we've got a great one coming up next week, uh, which should be with Coach Vesa Punka from uh, the Junior Tennis Champion Center, a great facility that has housed many great players like uh, Dennis Kudla, who has previously been on the podcast, as well as Francis Tiafo, who I would love to get on the podcast at some point. All right. Well, that's it for this week. And thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Mirvan Aranshad signing out.
1: Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.